conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I am your host, Deanna Chapman, and I am joined once again by Katie Schaefer. Today we are talking all about the recent DC Comics movie, Wonder Woman 1984. It's been a huge topic of discussion lately for anyone who hasn't seen it. It is available in select theaters that are open. I personally will not be going to a theater anytime soon still. And it is also available on HBO Max, but they limited that to 31 days, I believe. So by the time you're listening to this, you'll probably have closer to 25 days to watch it. But I think it was a very smart move to release it on streaming and theatrically. Katie, how are you doing? And do you agree with that? I'm doing great. Yes, I think it was a good move. Like, we just kind of have to move forward. And this isn't necessarily a comment in any way on the movie. It's more like, if we want the film industry to continue, we need to find a way to release films that isn't in theaters. As much as it's damaging to the theater industry, it's also, you know, more heavily going to impact the film industry as a whole. Yeah, and we did a whole movie theater roundtable earlier. I want to say it was at least a couple to a few months ago. This whole thing has been going on for so long. Time is a construct and nobody actually knows when anything happened in 2020. Exactly. This is very true. <laughs> but I think I was very surprised to see how many people actively disliked Wonder Woman 1984. So was I. I was, I try not to read anything, like full articles or anything. And like, I always kind of delicately skim my tweets when it's about something like this, because mm -hmm. I don't want to be spoiled. I want to go in with my own opinions and see how I feel. And it's... I was just like, how is this so bad? Like, I really enjoyed the first one. It has its problems, don't get me wrong. But it's really a, a fantastic Wonder Woman movie. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, oh, Patty Jenkins can definitely pull this off. And the setting seemed like an interesting one. And so I was really excited to see it. And I was kind of nonplussed by the fact that there were so many people just hating on it. And so many people just like, it was meh. Right. And with the first movie, I think what worked well with that was the origin story in particular. We get this whole sequence on Themyscira and we get that again in this movie. That is where the movie starts. And we go back to sort of the same time period with Diana as a young child and wanting to compete. And the big lesson in that whole sequence is you cannot take a shortcut to get what you want. And it's not saying don't have goals and don't have dreams. It's just saying do the hard work to achieve those things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I liked how they used that. I thought it was a good setup for the movie without feeling really heavy handed. Like as soon as you know, they talk about the end where you can't take the shortcut and you have to, you know, you can't ignore the truth beyond that. And so I Immediately was like, okay, so we're going to, Diana is going to be tested in some way dealing with the truth. And I knew that Steve Trevor is coming back in this. And so that was kind of what I was expecting, but I was still interested to see how they were going to pull that off. And, you know, that's, I think, where my personal problems start with the movie is that there's just a lot of hand waving done. Yeah. Like, we're moving the plot along. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, a lot of superhero movies have done that over the years. And Very the true. thing is, you know, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, you know, it's just about this sort of magic rock that grants wishes. And that's kind of silly. But when you think about it, that's almost exactly what the Infinity Stones do. But I think the big difference is that Marvel spent years building up to that. And this, it's just a thing that appears. Right. It's the it's the MacGuffin or whatever they call it. Right. You know, here's the thing I, about this movie that will stretch throughout this review when we talk about it is like, as I was watching it, I got kind of irritated and upset with it. But then as I'm, you know, thinking about it afterwards, I was like, you know, you know that that actually kind of works pretty well. It's It's like you can't nitpick, especially with DC movies. That's important. And especially with the rock thing, it's like, in the DC universe, there are much more prevalence of like giant magical artifacts. Yeah. And so 
I don't think in a DC world they needed to set it up. And I think it works really well and that they made it so that guy can become the stone. That was where I thought like, okay, this was a good choice. I don't even really think I spent too much time thinking about the stone itself. I was more interested in how Max Lord was going to play into everything. And I think sometimes the DC films try to do too much because all of the promotion from what we saw, we didn't know that Pedro Pascal was playing Max Lord, but we knew that Kristen Wiig was playing Cheetah. Right, right. I was there was very much a setup of Cheetah as the bad guy. I can understand why, to be clear. Like, that's a hard thing to set up because there's a lot going on within like how the bad guy comes to be the bad guy. Right. And Cheetah is a much more, you know, she's a well known character. It's a much easier to say, here's, you know, bad super villain, here's good superhero to fight. But the movie does not give you that. Mm-hmm. Not until way into the film and even then it's real touch and go and really i mean how much kristen wig did we get in the movie like i felt she wasn't a huge presence in it she drove the plot when she was in it yes yes she's but she doesn't get a whole lot of screen time i guess is what i mean yeah and you really don't feel like she's the villain by the end of it it's one of those things where i think dc tries to put too many villains in their movies sometimes when you could just have one central villain because obviously you have the mall scene which is you know sort of the first big sequence that we get in 1984 and Wonder Woman is basically just taking down these everyday thieves it's not like there's some big bad villain but they're there in order to give us the setup of, hey, there's this black market for these antiques. This is how the Smithsonian ends up getting them. <laughs> and then yep. it's like, I, I do want to preface this by saying that I did like this movie more than I think a lot of people did. But I still have this problem with DC movies in general, that they seem to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And it gets really frustrating because yes, there are some Marvel movies that are really bad. You know, I think a lot of people do not like The Incredible Hulk or Thor 2. If you do enjoy those movies, I am very happy for you. But to me, they're (laughs) kind of the very bottom tier of Marvel movies. And I think Marvel was able to just keep going in a way to where they didn't necessarily make the same mistakes over and over again. They did tell some similar stories over and over again, but it depends on the execution, you know? So for DC movies to try to be a little too overstuffed, I would say, at the least, you know, you have a big movie like Suicide Squad that has a ton of characters in it. And you and I are actually going to be discussing this movie as well, because it's one that I don't like much at all, really. But there's potential there. Because the cast is really well cast, you know, and yes, it is. It's just one of those things where they try to do too much. And sometimes they can do enough to make it work. You know, the first Wonder Woman movie, I think is the perfect example because they sort of build up to that end scene, that end fight. And it's not like there's only one villain technically, but you know who the villain is going to be the entire time. Yes, you do. (laughs) And to its credit, the movie tries to, you know, uses a good red herring to make you think you know. Right. But, you know, if you've watched a lot of movies, you're like, oh, there, there he is. There's a bad guy. Yeah. So for this, how did you feel about how much they were trying to accomplish? I agree with you that they really try to cram in a lot. And I think they're too used to doing TV shows where you can do a lot with your little amount of time because you're going to have, you know, in theory, an infinite amount of television episodes to tell your story. But with this, like, you can only do so much setup. You need to be tightly focused on the goals of the film. And I think this does a better job than, say, Justice League, which is a real low bar. <laughs> but but it, it really does try to com- overly complicate things in some ways and then utterly simplify other things that it's like you, you should not. This, this is 
going to take the audience out of it because this is going to like be a, a snag that their mind's going to run into. Like, well, that doesn't seem very realistic. So, and because that happened to me several times throughout the movie. And it felt like they just directed their attention to just adding, adding, adding as much story into this as possible without thinking about the quality of the story that they're trying to tell. Right. My one other big gripe with DC is how many of the major fights have to happen in the dark. Yes. Yeah, DC has a real lighting problem. They need to they need to figure that except James Wan. James Wan does fine. But everybody else needs to figure their shit out. Yeah, because we have the mall scene, very brightly lit, a little, you know, campy, obviously. I think that's definitely something they were going for. It seems to me that anything that is set in the 80s sort of has this innate campiness to it almost. And yeah. I really felt like, okay, if you can do the mall scene, granted, she's not going up against these big bad villains, but then you can also do that sort of stretch of highway scene in broad daylight, but you can't have her fight Cheetah in daylight. And it was super weird because it was obviously daytime as she was getting to where Max Lord was, and then all of a sudden it just gets so much darker, like he's in some deep dark place but you're just like this place is you know outside like every other place <laughs> yes the cheetah fight scene in particular it's like everything all of a sudden gets this gray filter put over it yeah when she's dealing with max like even that's poorly lit but like the cheetah fight scene i i'm pretty sure that's because the cgi because that cheetah cgi was not where it needed to be and i think it would have just been a million times better if they had had actual Kristen Wiig in, you know, makeup and an outfit and then maybe add some CGI touches. Right. Then you could have had that brightly lit scene that it really needed to showcase the difference between the two and that they opted to just kind of cheap out, it felt like. It's like, oh, what? you're making the same mistakes again, like you said. And it's kind of crazy to say a movie cheaped out when its budget was $200 million. Right, right. They had so much money. And like some of the CGI is fantastic. Like her wings throughout it, those look great. The truck fight scene on the highway, that looks pretty awesome. But some of it was just like, did this just, you just couldn't figure this out in production or what happened here? Yeah, there are some moments too when she's swinging with the lasso where you're kind of like, okay, that looks fine. It doesn't look <laughs> fantastic. And when she yeah. swoops down and picks up the kids, it's like her arms just there and she wasn't really like holding on to them. It was just little things like that that I think built up for a lot of people. And I don't want to say I'm willing to overlook this movie's flaws, because obviously we're talking about all these things we don't like. But I think a lot of what I didn't like about this movie is a DC problem, not a Wonder Woman problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the same kind of things that we see regularly in DC movies. And to be fair, Marvel has its own types of things that it does right. that don't necessarily work for me that they kind of tend to do in every movie. But DCs are pretty glaring. And that's very frustrating to keep seeing over and over again, especially when you get so excited for something like Wonder Woman. You know, I, I tried to, I liked the second half of the movie a lot better than the first half. And so I tried to think about it like, okay, well, the first half of the movie was the setup. So how did I like it? The payoff that they gave us. And that made me a little more uh, generous, I think, to the movie than some people are willing to be. See, I think I maybe liked the first half or even the first two thirds better because then that final act is where everything gets dark and muddied and you're kind of like, what's going on? <laughs> and you really feel like this movie had the potential to be so much better if the writing were better and if they made certain choices that would have, you know, brightened things up even a little more because my big gripe with the first movie is that so much of it is so dark that if you watch that movie during the day, you're going to miss a ton of stuff, which I rewatched it during the day before I watched this one. And I was just like, what's happening? I can't really see anything. Yeah. And that is just the lingering influence of the Zack Snyder verse, which no judge or statement on if you like the Zack Snyder ones. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy them. They're just not my personal thing. But I do think that the lighting 
is very poor in that. And I think the over-reliance on CGI villainry is a big part of the reason they have to do it that way, because otherwise it's going to look cartoony. And that's a, just a poor choice. Like it ha And it happens in the Marvel movies, too, when they're out in broad daylight, um, you know, particularly in um, Infinity War. But, you know, sometimes you just got to make it work so that the audience can see what the hell is happening. And look, other people might think that Marvel makes the same mistakes over and over again. It's completely subjective as to what you prefer in superhero movies. But sometimes I get the feeling that the people who are being overly critical of what some of the characters look like and how they're acting haven't actually read comic books. That I, I agree. I think there is a certain tendency for folks who don't read comics, broad generalizations and all that. I think there is a tendency for folks who don't read comics to kind of not realize that these characters are kind of acting the way they do in the source material. Right. And they don't catch the nuances of what's going on here. And a lot of the short, the storytelling shorthand that's used in comic books is different than what's used in, in movies and TV. So if you don't consume that kind of art, then you're just not going to catch on to that stuff. And so it can feel very dissatisfying, I think. And I think there's also the other spec end of the spectrum of comic book fans who require their, you know, very specific things out of the movies <laughs> that you're just never going to get because that's yeah. not going to work in a film medium. It goes both ways. And I'm not saying that people who want to watch comic book movies have to read the comic books. I no, don't want to no, say they should that work at all. Everybody. That's totally personal preference. Katie, you and I do that all the time because we love mm -hmm. both mediums for very different reasons. And I just find it interesting when people are kind of like, well, this character was too campy or, you know, things like that when <laughs> that is the character. So I think sometimes you'll miss out on those things. And I'm not saying that any specific person said that in particular, but it does seem to be something that kind of goes around every time there's a comic book movie that has this much of a difference in people who like it and people who don't. Yeah, yeah. And that's that can a lot of the times be chalked up to using much more more obscure comic characters so there just is yeah. not that reference which is good i personally i like it when we see the more obscure characters get to, a chance to shine but it's an unfortunate aspect i think that people do tend to do that like oh this is he's just not you know diana is very she's very honorable and very much about her duty and like that can make her come across as kind of naive in some ways but that's the character and that's, you know, that's who I want to see on screen making choices. So for me, it works, but it's not going to work for everybody. Right. Yeah. I'm a little confused by the people who think this is worse than Suicide Squad and have rated it as such. But <laughs> yeah, it doesn't bother me that people didn't like this movie. It just piques my curiosity because I'm like, did I missed something glaring that was really bad about this. And I know one of the big things that people are talking about is the part of the movie that takes place in Egypt. Yes. And as someone who is really bad at history, it was one of my worst subjects in school. I'm not intensely familiar with the sort of political climate in the 80s. I caught that this was what Reagan era. Yes. Yep. President Reagan is in this. Or a guy playing him, obviously. Right. And, you know, so this is what, the Cold War time period? Yeah, there's a lot going on during that time period. I have some familiarity with it. At that time, there was an insane amount of conflict between Israel and Egypt. And that Gal Gadot is Israeli is a big part of that, I think. So, and she, is, she was part of the Israeli Defense Force and supports them, which, you know, the conflict between Israel and Palestine right now. So there's a lot of current day political stuff and previous day political stuff all wrapped up in this that I don't I don't know how well they handled it. Because, again, I I know some stuff about this, but I am not by no means well educated in these issues. Yeah, I don't want to speak too much towards what was going on in the 80s at this time, because yeah. I have no idea. I wasn't born yet. So <laughs> I really do not have a grasp on this time period outside of, you know, like, what entertainment happened. <laughs> and, yep, you know, exactly. Another thing I've seen people saying is there weren't a lot of 80s songs, if any, in this. I think Duran Duran was credited in the credits with a song, but I don't recall hearing that song. And 
I really felt like this was something that DC has previously overutilized in Suicide Squad. They had so many needle drops that by the time I was halfway through the movie, I was like, I don't want to hear any songs right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. in this, I didn't really notice the score, which usually I will notice it if it really helps the movie or really hinders it. So the fact that it was just kind of there is a little bit of a bummer because you're like, I want this to improve my experience of the movie. And I know we're talking about a lot of the negative aspects here, and I promise we will get to the things that we enjoyed. But yes, yes, I don't think this is a perfect movie by any means. I have a friend, Drew Deach, who loved this movie, and he and his co-host Travis talked about it on Genre Vision as well, so I will link to that in the show notes if you want the perspective of someone who really, really loved this movie. But I think, Katie, you and I are kind of on the same page here where it does have a lot of flaws, but there were still certain elements to it that were enjoyable. I know some people didn't like the Themyscira opening, but to me, that was very similar to how the first movie handled it. And I understood the parallel that they were going for with the lesson being taught. Because as soon as people start making all of these wishes, they're taking shortcuts like Diana did in the competition. Right. And it's not too obviously laid out. I mean, for those who don't spend their lives watching movies, <laughs> I think it's it's handled pretty well in for general audiences. It doesn't necessarily shove it down your throat that this is the message. It just is very strong. And I think it works because the two situations are pretty different and it doesn't really come together till the end and make those connections for for the audience. And I think that um, I, I liked how they came around to that, how, how it links it back to that early scene in Themyscira, which is a, it's just fun to watch. I gotta say, like the people flying all over the place and the little girl doing these fantastic stunts and that was just so enjoyable and a really bright way to start the film and that I think is what Wonder Woman definitely needs is that brightness and sunshine and hope. I think that's a big thing of Wonder Woman is hope and they start the movie out at least with a lot of that. Right, plus we're getting backstory without it being completely unrelated to the story in the present day, because Themyscira is such a big part of Wonder Woman's life until that moment where she literally leaves with Steve in the first movie. Yep, exactly. And she so she's lived there her whole life. And we're not really given an idea of how long that is. You know, she's obviously supposed to be in like her mid-20s, but she also has this kind of ageless look. Right. So it's interesting to think about her adapting to the world. And they set all of that up, obviously, in the first one. The fish out of water. The I gotta say, the DC Universe just loves fish out of water stories. Because <laughs> they do it again in this one. But they flip it. Reversed. So it's yep. Steve who is the fish out of water. And I know you have some gripes with how they handled what Steve is able to do in the 80s. Oh, yes. And I have seen this other criticism that why did Steve have to come back in someone else's body? And that is a very good question because everyone else just has these things appear. Like the guy who wanted a farm and suddenly just has cows. It's like, well, those kind of just appeared. It's not like that cow's pretending to be another cow. <laughs> for for what we know. Who knows? Maybe it is pretending to be another cow. Maybe. Or maybe the cows were stolen from another place. Like, <laughs> I agree. It's just that felt uneven of... Showing that there's a cost to these things, the wishes, like especially the initial two between that Diana makes and that um, Kirsten Wake's character makes. Yeah, because it's not like she just got Steve back. It's like they robbed this other guy of his entire life <laughs> for however many days. Right. And that's like, I think initially that was a big problem for me in the beginning. I was like, okay, are we just going to pretend that that's not happening? Like Diana's just cool with this because that's not okay that they just stole this guy's life. And it takes them a little too long to acknowledge that that's yeah. what's happening mm -hmm. because it's a huge deal. <laughs> so yeah, it's like this movie does try to kind of 
answer all of these questions that pop up as you're watching it, but it takes a little longer than you would like it to. But I do want to talk about the stuff that we do like, because like I said, you and I did like this movie, contrary yes. to everything we have just said. Yes, and yes. I think the opening scene worked for me. The mall scene, I've been seeing a lot of comparisons to some of the older Superman movies, which that's a blind spot in my watch history here of superhero movies, but I am familiar with them. I have seen clips of them. I understand that is how that feels. And I think that's kind of the vibe they were going for, but then it kind of takes this turn and you're like, this movie doesn't quite know what it wants to be, but you and I seem to understand what it was trying to be. I think that is supposed to be a reference and like a callback to the 80s Wonder Woman show. That's kind of what it felt like to me because I've watched that show. My, it was my sister's favorite when I was little, so I've seen it quite a few times. And that is exactly the feel it has. Yeah. Very, you know. It's kind of like watching Adam West as Batman. Exactly, exactly. Although that's little, even campier. <laughs> yeah, a little forward in time, so it's not quite so obvious. You know, there's no pow on yeah. the screen. <laughs> At least not often. But I was okay with that because it kind of, especially with how they started it out, we get Themyscira and then we kind of set, this is how Diana is behaving now. Because we've, there's this huge gap. I mean, 60 some years. God, my math is not good today. But, you know, between World War One, which ends in 1919 and 1984. So she's obviously had That's to 65 adapt. 65 years. Yeah. Oh, well. Hey, go accounting. <laughs> um, they um, do a good job giving us that shorthand of this is where Diana's at now in her life. I want to say that visually, I think they got a lot of the 80s aspects down, especially the outfits. Oh, yeah. You know, and obviously, unless you are building everything on a set, it's very hard to make something look like it did now 36 years ago. Exactly. That's that's the most expensive part of a movie, honestly, other than the CGI, is if you are doing a, a something a period, period piece. piece. Yeah, it is incredibly costly, and the further back you go, the more it costs. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know you got to acquire all those things or build them yourself, and either way, it's pretty expensive. But I think you know it feels authentic. You know, from I was born in 1985, so I still kind of vaguely remember what it was like driving around in the 80s in the back seat, you know? Yeah, so a lot of the outfits, they really nailed the fanny pack, obviously. <laughs> but oh, yes. There were some really endearing moments in this, too, that I think we've kind of glossed over until this point. Like when Diana was taking Steve around and kind of getting him up to speed and showing him the art that was around the city and he kind of looks at the trash can and like cocks his head and you're just like no not that <laughs> yeah not that. No. and it was just such a fun little moment and it really just felt like if they had kept going with the steve and diana storyline they would have had to get him there a different way because the way they got him there, you're kind of like, okay, well, this can't last forever because they're not just going to essentially end someone else's life to bring Steve back because, you know, I think this is something that they very intentionally did where Diana makes the same mistake she made as a child. She took the shortcut to get Steve right. back. And obviously, Steve is someone who shouldn't have been able to come back in the first place, but she needed that closure that she didn't get in the first movie. And this movie gives the two of them that. Yes, it allows them the choice of saying goodbye and instead of him just kind of like, and distraction, now I run away and go and I die. <laughs> you know, he sacrifices himself. And because I think they'd set that up, that Steve was not a man who was going to just kind of take the easy way out. He's already proved that he knows that you have to live the truth and you have to be willing to sacrifice what you, you know, most love and most want. So we know that Steve is not going to let this continue and that the question is, is Diana going to be able to let go? And they really do a good job with setting that up and making it a question. Um, there's a scene where they discover that in order to stop everything, um, and it's Steve, Kristen Wiig, and Diana, and then a random side character. And both Kristen Wiig and Diana are like, nope, we're not doing it that way. Not giving up what I have. Nope, no way. And at first you wonder, 
you want to know why is Diana saying this? What's going on there? And that's kind of the first inkling we get that she understands that something has to be done and it might cost her more than she's willing to pay. Speaking about Barbara in particular, you know, she clearly wishes to be more like Diana. And it was interesting to me that she automatically put together then that she was Wonder Woman? Yeah, I didn't really get it. I, I couldn't understand what the public knowledge of Wonder Woman was. Yeah, that's something that I think this movie didn't really know how to address because it felt like she had kind of been in hiding, but then she was out in public in the mall doing her thing. And then it was very unclear, but I kind of let that slide because I was like, okay, Barbara is clearly a very smart person. Very awkward when we meet her. But oh she's very intelligent, and a lot of people underestimate her. And I think that's what made her character interesting, because even though she didn't get as much screen time and wasn't ultimately the main villain, I think how her character progresses would have done better with a longer storyline, you know, if we saw her on screen more, basically. But you kind of mm -hmm. have to jump to these conclusions because they're not giving you every step of the way. You see Barbara, you see how she's changing when she's giving Max the tour. You see how she is piecing things together, especially with the stone. You know, she gets these flyers and all of this information. And she seems to do that all relatively quickly. So you know that she is intelligent and capable of doing her work even before she makes the wish and then you can i guess see how she could come to that conclusion because she is suddenly stronger a lot stronger and i guess it happens because of that scene after the two of them get dinner yep and diana comes in to the park saying she forgot her keys and totally lays this guy out <laughs> and you know barbara doesn't really see it but she can see the distance that guy has gone. Right, exactly. It's not, uh, it's obvious that something crazy went on and the, uh, <laughs> Diana's explanation of like, oh, I just used his own body weight against him. Don't even worry about it. Like, does not add up for someone of Barbara's intelligence. Right. So even though they don't really show Barbara coming to that conclusion until she l literally tells us she has come to that conclusion, you can still get a feel for how she does that, even though it would have been nice to sort of see her working that out a little more. Yeah, I really liked Barbara's character. I didn't necessarily like how they set her up, because it's real obvious what they're going for from the start. You know, Kristen Wiig is painfully awkward, like it is cringe how awkward she is. And you can see what's coming very much from the beginning with her character and how she interacts with Diana. But I think Kristen Wiig does such a great job playing Barbara. Yes, and absolutely. Showing that transition from being the awkward person to being the character she becomes at the end and realizing that what she does sacrifice and that she's giving away far too much and knowing, I think, that the movie doesn't do the best job of this, but I think... The goal that what you're supposed to take away from it is that Barbara knows she's giving up too much, but she just can't let go of being a different person. Yeah, I really loved Kristen Wiig in the role, and I really love Pedro Pascal as sort of this coked out Max Lord almost. Oh, God, he was great. And, you know, he's been in so many things lately that I think a lot of people have really been enjoying. And to see the two of them play these comic book villains the way that I would picture these villains being played. And obviously you can go in a different direction with Max Lord if you want to. I'm pretty sure he was one of the villains who has shown up in Supergirl, I want to say. And there's two very different ways you can play that character. And I'm sure in the comics, he's been written the same two ways before as well. But for the 80s, this felt right. Spot on. Greed is good. 
like 80s bad guy from, you know, every, you know, teenage 80s movie, the rich developer, whatever. Like he is perfect as the bad guy in this role. I And Pedro Pascal is an amazing actor. And, you know, we've obviously been talking about Mando a lot. And he really differentiates himself from the little bits we get to see of his face when he's Mando. Like those are two very different characters, and both of them, he's completely believable. Two very different looks as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, yeah. And so did you think, when, since we're talking about Pedro Pascal's character, did you th- see any, any, not to make it political, but it's the 80s, man, Trump comparisons in this? You know, having just watched Home Alone 2. <laughs> yes, yes. I do kind of see it. I don't know if that was necessarily the intention because, like I said, there's been different versions of Max Lord in the comics. And I just looked, he was one of the villains in Supergirl and he was played by Peter Fascinelli. Oh, nice. So you have very different portrayals of this character. And I think they work depending on the story. So, you know, Supergirl, obviously, set in the present day. This set back in the 80s. And comic book characters don't age. You know, that's just how it goes. But I think Max Lord is definitely one of those greedy businessmen. He's kind of like just a step below Lex Luthor. Yes, yes, without all the insane intelligence. More like a, a level of cunning as opposed to like intelligence yeah he's a good businessman he's not a genius or or a super genius or anything like that and that works for his character and Mm -hmm. especially with how they portray him here and i think i don't think it was intentional but it definitely had a lot of parallels to that especially that look and that was not a unique look to him there were that was you know the hairstyle and suits and everything that was all so very 80s yes yeah, shout out yet again. The wardrobe in this is just perfect. And the in particular, the scene where Chris Pine is, uh, or where Steve is getting dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See him in like all those outfits? Yeah. Oh, that Parachute was, I think, pants. My... Yes, yes. And oh, doesn't this look good? No, N- no. <laughs> so, but I think the Pedro Pascal, that he's the villain and that... They still manage to make him a sympathetic villain, and it works. And by the end, like, that he makes the good choice and redeems himself felt very satisfying and not something you usually see in a DC movie. And I think that really helped bring the movie up in my estimation. Like, I, I, get, I would give it a higher rating specifically because they were able to do that with both the bad guys in this, make them sympathetic and understandable. Right. What did you think of the part in the Cheetah and Wonder Woman fight scene where they are underwater? Because I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, there are ways to explain why Diana didn't get electrocuted because we have seen that some of her powers are kind of similar to Superman in that she isn't necessarily affected by things the same way regular humans are. Yeah, and we see her in this one swinging from lightning bolts with her with her lasso. So yeah, I was like, eh, she's a she was a metahuman. Like, she's half god. Lightning doesn't seem to be something that, and she's half god by Zeus. So lightning makes sense that that might not affect her the way it would, you know, a normal human who's been transformed. Yeah, that was just something I was kind of like, you can't explain this, but I see why to some people it would be strange. Yep, I can understand that. It's like it's a it's a middling plot hole of eh, can I overlook this or can I let it go? Because we've seen how much strength she has. It's not quite Superman level, but it's pretty darn close, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they've been, you know, in the same movie together and we've seen them and she's obviously been, you know, almost a match for him. Yeah, so I think that is something that I, again, was able to overlook because there is some sort of explanation for it. It would just be nice if there was some sort of consistency with how things get explained in these movies. Yes, it would. And I was okay with it, other than how it looked. I, you know, you you obviously see which, where Diana is going to go with it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. She's a magical lady. It's okay. And those are the kind of things that don't 
bother me because it's it can be pretty easily explained by like superhero logic, which doesn't need to be rational. No, absolutely. You don't want it to be rational. They're superheroes. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that is easier for me to overlook than some of the other choices they made. So but I th- and I think it worked really well as a way to end or well, as a way to end the fight. We'll say that. Yeah, and I'd be lying if I didn't note that I probably enjoyed this just because I've been waiting for another superhero movie for quite a while, too. And it's just like, I really, really wanted this to be good. And I'm obviously not saying it didn't have flaws because we just talked about so many of them. But I think this was the kind of movie that I needed at this point in time. Yeah, I... Like I said, as I watched the movie, I had it was real up and down my reactions to it, and then like when it when the roller coaster finally ended, it was it was in a pretty good place. But there were points in it where I was just so mad because I really wanted to love this movie. Like I really loved the first one despite its flaws, and it it means a lot to me as a woman to watch women on screen, especially with having Cheetah in there, having a badass villain and a badass superhero and getting to see more about Diana like I was just so and it's directed by a woman and written by a woman like I really want to enjoy this because I want to see that representation because it feels so good and satisfying and you know it's not something that women get to experience a whole lot in the superhero universe and that it had those flaws I think and I think personally that might be the reason why people are being so hard on this is Anytime you have a a film that's big for representation, you know, people are incredibly brutal because it doesn't blow you out of the water away. Yeah. And so therefore it's terrible is kind of kind of how I see this happen a lot of the time. And, you know, for me, like my biggest nitpick with the movie is the stupidest thing. But it's that. Is it the plane? It's the plane. It's that a World War One pilot can fly a goddamn jet engine because that is in no way conceivable or possible. It's just that people don't know what a World War One airplane looked like. Yeah, they know, but and a World War Two airplane pilot probably could have had much more success. But it just drove me nuts. I'm watching it. I'm like. Okay, no, he wouldn't know what a throttle is. He wouldn't know what any of this is. Like maybe that's his power. That's I guess. And that was the that was the hand waving that for me was the most frustrating to deal with where it was like, "Okay, guys, this is just beyond the pale." But as I watched the movie, I was like, "Okay, well, if I let that s- they distract you from it by turning it into the invisible jet." Exactly. That's that's their that was their ploy. And I was like, "Okay, I guess I can allow this i was more hoping that it would be diana who flew it because that i could believe that some point in the last 65 years she had well she knows all of the languages so it would not surprise right. me <laughs> right that seemed the logical choice and that you know she steve just hops in he's like oh okay i'll flip all these switches and pull this thing back and it's like dude there were no switches there was a stick a brake line and a starter yeah <laughs> maybe you had some of the same you know like dashboard dials and stuff yep Yep. you would still have some of the same dials but like there were no freaking like to start every world war one airplane someone had to stand in front of the big rotor in the front and pull it down and get it going like yeah that's how primitive those things were they honestly could have fixed this in like five seconds just by having diana flip the switches Yep. And just tell him, like, here, we start it this way and then pull this back and this will get us going. Like, it could have been avoided because I could see I can buy like he's been in the air and he can feel the you know, he could have figured it out. But just that he gets in and knows how to start it like that was too much for me. But in the grand scheme of things, that is, like I said, I highly doubt there were too many other people bothered by that because it's just not common knowledge of what airplanes look like 100 years ago. (laughs) So... I tried and I felt like that was a lot of the nitpicky complaints was that it was like this isn't really important to the storyline and I liked the storyline and I liked how they developed it. So therefore, you know, that helps me forgive a lot of those um, little stuff that just caught at me while I was watching the movie. Yeah, and I totally understand being frustrated by those things and having them build up for people and it ends up making them not like this movie because – It feels like 
DC keeps having the potential and just not quite reaching it with some of the stuff they're trying to do. And I do want to spend a little more time here talking about the things we liked because I know oh yeah, for whatever reason, this episode has been more negative. And maybe as we talk about it more, you know, I'm kind of rethinking my rating because I had it at a four when I finished and I was like sitting with it for a few hours or, you know, that night. And then the next day I was kind of like, no, it wasn't that good. And now that, you know, I had bumped it down a half star, I'm kind of sitting here thinking about it again. I'm like, maybe it's closer to a three for me. And I think it's just because while I do think they kind of wrap everything up by the end, it took too long. And I do think there were certain things that worked well. I did enjoy the campiness that a lot of other people didn't enjoy quite as much. Loved everything on Themyscira because I am someone who just loves seeing that kind of backstory without it being super forced. And I think putting those things at the beginning kind of make it feel a little less forced because they're like, hey, we're going back in time for a little bit and then we'll give you the story. Yeah, we get a little bit of setup and a little bit more character development for Diana. Yeah. Because the origin for her is handled pretty quickly in the first in the first movie we don't get a lot of i mean it's we don't get much of her as a young woman or a girl in that one so this allows us just a little bit more of a peek into her into her history and i agree i really liked that there's so much about this movie i liked even though i think my rating is probably also about a three maybe yeah about a three just because there were too many snags but overall i Enjoyed it when by the time we got to the end, despite the mixed bag CGI. But that final scene between her and the final scene between her and Pedro Pascal um, is fantastic. How she interacts with them and when she gives the little speech that's going out to the world and how it turns around and how well it it engages in what personal sacrifice. Sometimes you have to sacrifice things personally in order to make the world a better place. And that they went with that as the end and that as the conclusion was such a good moment for me. And it was so very Wonder Woman and that I really appreciated that Patty Jenkins understood that like, no, we can't have this end with like this huge, crazy world shattering fight. This has to be a moral discussion almost in a in an interesting way. Yeah, I think at this point, I'm definitely sitting around a three with it, you know, which it's kind of a bummer that since finishing the movie, I've kind of already pumped it down a full star. But I understand a lot of the problems people have with it again. And I think for me, it wasn't necessarily about the time period it was set in. You know, a lot of people were like, well, this story didn't need to be set in the 80s. And I completely agree. I think... There was something about the aesthetic that they just liked about the 80s. I don't think the 80s impacted the story in any real meaningful way, which is kind of a bummer because you do want your setting to almost feel like another character. Right. And I can understand that desire, too. And I think it it doesn't help that the DC Universe films are really constrained right, by their timeline and I could tell some of that throughout this the the, the in the script. Like I think it ha- they felt it had to be set in a time period before any of this other stuff had happened in their movies, so that they had the freedom to kind of play with whatever they wanted. And I think that is often a problem with the DC universe is that the constraints that they've put around their you know cinematic properties can be very limiting for the individual movies. One scene in particular that I want to give a shout out to for being a very, very 80s scene is when Barbara goes to the gym. And it's just like (laughs) the perfect sort of 80s muscle gym. And she starts picking up all of the different weights. And, you know, she's just picking up the dumbbells. She's not, you know, doing anything too crazy. She picks up the biggest one. And then she's just like, oh, yeah, this is easy. And then she goes over to the big weight set where, you know, it's like the Olympic weights. Oh, yes. And then just no problem. Hoists that up like it like it weighs a feather. 
And the looks on all of the guys' faces in the background was just so fun. So good. Yes, I liked that. And it was, that felt very 80s. I think the tinge of 80s that they add to everything really worked for me because that was a part of Captain Marvel that was kind of annoying, honestly. It was like, oh, look at all this 90s stuff. We're in the 90s. Did you guys know? And it's like, "Ah, yeah, I was there. I don't care. (laughs) But like... It felt like the 80s was omnipresent in the film, but it wasn't overbearing. And that's why I agree with you. Like, I was fine without all the needle drop moments and stuff like that, because that just gets tiresome, I think, after a very short while. Yeah. So to kind of wrap up with some of the things we enjoyed, I enjoyed her lassoing a single bullet. Yes, that was so fun. That was very well done. That was one of those CGI moments where it didn't look as awkward as some of the other scenes during that sequence but the fact that you know Steve was kind of still set in his ways too and he's kind of like he almost forgot that he didn't need to protect Diana for a little bit (laughs) yep yep I think his character is just great in this and then he's always like oh yeah I don't need to do that (laughs) yep yep exactly (laughs) and I think the the relationship between um, Pascal's character and his son, Alistair, is very nice. I like that they include that. And uh, the little scene that they, the two of them have at the end is very sweet. And that, especially because Pascal acknowledges his failings as a father and all of that. And like that, I was, you know, as a parent, I was like, oh, my little heart's all, all happy with this now. <laughs> so they did such a good job with those little emotional beats, I think, anyway. They also did a good job of how Barbara sort of transitioned. She was obviously more playful with Max giving the tour, but then she also gets the opportunity to basically stop being harassed by this guy who keeps harassing her. And I think that was an important scene because this guy is the same guy that Diana knocked down in the park. And he's obviously sort of just always lingering around. And it's completely unwanted attention. And Barbara's like, you know what, I'm going to take a minute to put you in your place. And then she gets to kind of move on from there. Right. It's such a big character moment for her. And it's a character moment where she goes too far. You know, she it doesn't say whether or not she kills him, but she if she didn't, she obviously comes very close to killing him. And that's a big, you know, that's a big moment for for a villain to make their first, you know, their first very, very negative act. And it's played off so well because it's sympathetic because we've already seen this guy try to rape her before. Right. So we know that he's not a good person, but it's she still doesn't make a good choice. And so they handle her transition very well because I felt sympathetic for her throughout the whole movie. It would have played very differently if she had done that to the homeless guy who she kept giving food to. Right. That would have felt very out of character. Yeah, they had it happen to the person it needed to happen to. And it was such a small moment in the movie, but I felt like it moved her character forward in a new light after that. Yes. Yep. We know that that I felt like it tells us that that kind person that she once was is now disappearing. And we see the cost of what this, you know, newfound power and, you know, confidence is doing to her. Yeah. What did you think about the fact that this wasn't a super action-packed movie as much as the first one? I was very happy with that, honestly. Okay. I don't I don't need my superhero movies to necessarily have 17, 18 fight scenes. Like, I think I'm much more concerned with the fight scenes being earned and well done. And for the most part, except for the cheetah scene, they're well done and they are makes sense within the context of the film they're not just and they don't go on and on and on that's my biggest pet peeve with action films is when you know it's 15 minutes of just straight action it's like i am done move on (laughs) so that's a personal feeling and i know i can see how some people would be disappointed that there isn't more action but i also feel like wonder woman isn't a character that inspires a lot of action-y scenes because she's not fighting people just to fight. You know, she's fighting for other people. Right. I also feel like I don't need 
all superhero movies or TV shows to be a lot of action all the time because anyone who watches the shows knows that those kind of go at a different pace, obviously because they're telling much longer stories over the course of a season or whatever. They kind of have this overarching theme, but it kind of reminded me of like when I was watching Jessica Jones. She's someone who is obviously very strong, can fight very well. Well, well being a relative term, she's not trained (laughs) in the same way that Diana is. But, you know, she's a character who could very easily get into a bunch of fights all the time. And that's very much her personality as well in the show. But she doesn't necessarily have this huge blowout battle with the villain every single episode. And I think that's kind of more what they were going for with Wonder Woman. They have the opening scene where she's just going up against these thieves. So she's kind of taking it easy. It's more like she's just capturing them than fighting them because she gets rid of the guns very early (laughs) in the sequence. And then it's just about wrangling them, basically. And there's that whole little moment with the little girl and, you know, that whole thing. And I thought that was fine. But then you get the highway scene and the fight with Cheetah. And I do wish the last fight was better, obviously. But I don't think I need a ton of action all the time. And you could argue that the opening scene is all action, too, because it's a competition. Right. It's a fast-paced race to see who can get the furthest. It's not a fight, though. Right. And I just don't need, like, that's, action scenes do not always equate with fights in my mind. And I think that superhero movies often get boiled down to that. Like, well, they have to be, you know, smashy, smashy with someone. Well, that's, that's not the only exhilarating thing you can watch. And Wonder Woman really shows that, that you can have other kinds of action and it's still satisfying. I was still very much invested in like, oh, is she going to win? Is she going to win? Yeah. (laughs) I think because of how much fighting there is in a lot of superhero movies, that has kind of become the norm. But I would love to see more action sequences a la Mission Impossible. Yes. Yes. Those are so much. Those are so fun, you know, like and still suspense filled and taut. And I know Tom Cruise has been Not very nice to some people lately on the set of Mission Impossible, but I think the way the action scenes are done in those movies would really lend themselves to a lot of the different kinds of superhero movies that we could have in the future. Yeah, I'd like to see it branch out to be a wider range of types of films. And, you know, and DC, to give them credit, they have kind of tried to do that Uh since they you know, did the turnaround, um, you know, with Shazam, Aquaman. But even Shazam had their fight in the dark. So, you know, it's it's something that I just kind of want them to break the mold a little. And maybe it's because of the technology that they're not able to do that. But like you, I would have loved to see a few more practical effects in this movie. I think when movies kind of return to those effects is when things really kind of end up being top-notch. Yes, that's, I think, the thing that is really misunderstood by higher levels in filmmaking who produce, yeah. who give the budget approval. I mean, can you imagine how not great Star Wars would look today if they had gone with no practical effects? Yeah, or or The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. Like, that movie is a masterpiece of practical effects, and it doesn't need any CGI. And you can do so much with practical effects, especially these days, because the technology for that has also gotten better as the years have passed. And I think there's a reticence on the part of executives to go forward with that, because I think there's this idea that, like there's in video games, you know, the more realistic CGI we can get, the better. It's like, well, that's, you're doing too much here. Yeah. It can be done easier. Yeah. And again, I did enjoy quite a bit of this. I got some good laughs out of this, which is always very nice with superhero movies, because obviously that's something that Marvel has done more. But it felt like when DC was so dark that it felt out of place, that's where some of the things were not meshing well with me. So I think this is a step in that sort of direction that DC wants to go in. 
like the same way that Aquaman was. I enjoyed that. I know not everyone enjoyed that. I thought it was a fine movie. It wasn't top tier DC. There are few and far between in my top (laughs) tier with DC lately. And it really is a bummer because I want them to figure it out. And obviously so many people dislike this movie that it seems like they're not quite there yet. I think the stories need a little more fleshing out. Yes, and a little more a little more script doctoring. But also, if you read comics, you know that not every single story gets fleshed out. Yeah. So I, I think that's why my expectations are a little more tampered than some other people's, maybe. But at the same time, I know plenty of people who do read the comics and want something different out of these movies still, too, which is fine. Yep, yep. And I kind of always try to keep that in the back of my head is that this is where this is coming from. And especially with DC, because DC is a much more fantastical superhero universe than Marvel. Marvel really tries to kind of stay grounded in the real world. And DC, at least on the comic side, gives zero fucks about that. (laughs) Yeah, Marvel's very techie. They have gods. They're literally, you know, the Greek gods are literally characters in the Marvel universe, as are many others. So, or in the DC DC universe. So it's like, I'm willing to be more flexible with it because I know the source material and I'm, I want to see how they can represent that source material on screen And therefore, I try to give things, you know, I try to put them within context of where they what inspired them. Yeah. And DC has had a real hit or miss run. And I think this movie was definitely not the best it could have been. But I don't think it's as bad as everyone is saying. And I think I I will rewatch it at least once or twice over the next year. And I am looking forward to the rewatch because I'm like, okay, now I know all the stuff that bothers me about it. And I can just be like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Just let it go. And try to look for the things that I can like out of it. And I think I'll have more success the next time I watch it, finding the little good bits. Yeah. So I think we're both in agreement that the good things were some of the 80s stuff that we did get, you know, the outfits and the look and that stuff, the villains, played by Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig. Very good. Very well played. Yes. Oh, yes. And I think there was just enough in it for me to not be like, oh, my God, this is so bad that I hate it. Yeah. And and the other thing I I thought of is Steve and Diana's relationship. Always fun. I really liked that part of it, too. I really like them as a duo. Even, you know, relationship aside, I thought in the first movie that was one of the strong points right off the bat was sort of their chemistry. And it just really felt like because of the story that was being told in this movie, something had to give with that relationship in this one. But I still enjoyed the time we got with the two of them on screen. Yeah. And Chris Pine is so fun to watch in this role because he's not required to be he doesn't have to carry the whole movie on his shoulders like he does when he's Kirk or something in the Star Trek movies. He gets to just... You can tell he's having a lot of fun with this. Exactly. He just gets to kind of really stretch with his comedic chops and being a little over the top because Steve Trevor is a little over the top as a character. And I've it's just so fun to watch him be that character and I was so I'm happy that we got to see him I don't know that I need him again because I think that would just uh stretch they did announce a third movie I don't know what the extent of his involvement will be if any yeah and that I think that'll just be too torturous for the storyline to do that right and I don't know where they go with it but I do hope that we get to see uh, more cheetah in the next one because yeah Kristen Wiig was also just so fun to watch and really felt like she was giving it her all and I think she does that in most movies she's in so I'm I want to see more I do kind of want to see us back in the present day though because it's very strange to me that you know the first movie was bookended by Diana being in the present day yes yes and then they went to the 80s with this movie so that leads me to think the third one is going to be like okay we've had you know all of this backstory for Diana, let's catch up to post-Batman versus Superman present day. Yeah, I think they've, they, I think they're a little scared, personally. I think they're a little scared to start back up with current day timeline for that, for their main characters, because the Justice League just did not, 
go where everybody wanted it to go and all of that. So I'm interested to see where it's where it's going to end up because I mean yeah. Aquaman takes place in the present day, right? That takes does I that take place so. after Justice League or before? I think it might be. Just I think it might before? be before because he doesn't have um he has his trident in yeah. Justice League. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a little before because I think it's kind of like the Aquaman origin story, but not like too far in the past. Right, right. Because he's a he's a a delayed man. <laughs> it takes him a while to recognize that he should be the hero, and so it's you know he's almost thirty when he decides that I should get my shit together. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katie, I know you and I can talk comic book movies all day, but yes. Hopefully we covered a lot of the things that, you know, we both had questions about with this movie. We did enjoy it enough. Not perfect. And that's fine. But, you know, you you will be back on for more DC talk soon. Yes, we're going to get to discuss Suicide Squad at some point. And that one we definitely won't be so nice to, I don't think. <laughs> we can try. I don't know how well it will work. I, I, yeah, I just don't think there's as much positive to talk about. And that, you know... Yeah. But it'll still be fun. We get to talk about Margot Robbie, and she's always fun to talk about. Exactly. Well, thank you again, Katie. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.